Today's guest, Yara Aida, student and journalist coming to us from besieged Gaza. We have the audacity to bomb Nablus and kill three Palestinians. The next day, after they agreed to a ceasefire, whoever is a Palestinian, even in the diaspora, they're suffering just because they're Palestinian. The latest Israeli assault on Gaza killed 47 Palestinians, including 16 children. I genuinely thought I'm going to die if there's an aggression again on Gaza because of my mental health. I've been super traumatized from what I've witnessed in 2014, 2012 and 2008 that I've been suffering from my PTSD. I was wearing the press vest and it was my first time ever going on the ground as a journalist. I saw destruction not only in rubble, but I saw destruction in people's eyes. An attack on a horse cart. They genuinely don't care about human lives. Are you going to expect them to care about animals? I thought they would care because they have a vegan army. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gaza Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok. Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada. If you've really fallen in love with the phrase Islamic Jihad this past week, while Christians in Bethlehem look at you totally confused. Today's guest is Yara Aida, student and journalist coming to us live from besieged Gaza. Yara, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yara, I know you've been nonstop going at it, doing interviews, reporting live from some very horrific scenes. I've been following you very closely on Instagram and watching your stories. First of all, thank you so much for your reporting and, and bringing these stories to the world. I can't imagine what it's like for you personally to be in that position, to feel this responsibility, to have to tell these stories and also to have to go through it emotionally yourself. So I just want to first and foremost, thank you for your time and for your energy with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. You know, I've been following the podcast and I've seen like really inspiring, amazing guests like Noor Arakat, uh, Adnan, my friend, and so many other amazing, like Malak Matar, who's my friend as well. So it's an honor to be here. And I'm really glad to meet you and meet Michael, finally. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we're so honor. happy to have you. It's an honor to have you. There is relative calm in, in Gaza today. The latest Israeli assault on Gaza was from August 6th to August 8th. The assault killed 47 Palestinians, including 16 children. Of the 16 children who were killed in this brutal assault, many of them came from the Jabalia refugee camp and were killed in Israeli drone strikes. Yara, can you just take us through what it's been like for you these past couple of days reporting live from the scene? First of all, I genuinely did not think I was able to report or be on the ground. This, You know, I'm talking to you right now and I'm still shocked that I was able to go on the ground and actually be live and witness these things because I genuinely thought I'm going to die if there's an aggression again on Gaza. Not because they're going to bomb me, but because of my mental health. I've been super traumatized from what I've witnessed in the 2014 war, 2012 and 2008, that I've been suffering from my PTSD for a few years. And I live in the UK. And that's when I started suffering the most because I was finally in the post-traumatic, you know, world. I was in a safe place. I was uh, in the UK where everything is normal, where people are living their life without a blockade, without having four hours of electricity. And that alone has, you think, unfortunately, like, now I'm safe, I should be fine. But actually, um, for most Gazans who left even seeking refuge in other countries, um, well, I, I didn't seek refuge, but I mean, like, uh, I lived there as a student. Um, we still suffer. So wh whoever is a Palestinian, even in the diaspora, even if within Palestine, they're suffering just because they're Palestinian. So it was really difficult few days. I genuinely... Yani, I think it was a coincidence and a really weird coincidence because 
uh, I told my mother, whenever there's an aggression or another attack on Gaza, I'm going to leave. I'm going to immediately leave. I have my passport and I'm going to go to the border and I'm going to try. Uh, يعني, I don't know if it's going to be possible, but I'm going to try to leave. And this was the plan. But then I applied for my visa to the UK. So my passport wasn't with me. It was an Amman. And having not having my passport was literally like a sign to be خلاص, I have to witness what's happening and I have to be on the ground. And I've been interning at Ain Media, a film production company in Gaza. And I have an amazing team who literally welcomed me. And, you know, they, they're very inspiring. The strength they have, especially after their colleague being murdered. You might have heard of him, Yasser Murtaja. And Allah Yirhamu Yasser, he is the co-founder of Ain Media. So it's a really dear place to my heart and and it means so much to me that I'm working there so um I went with them and I was wearing the press vest and it was my first time ever going on the ground as a journalist as someone who's trying to uh, have a direct action on the ground because before I was a 14 year old girl who was scared and running in the streets and witnessing murder in 2014 you know witnessing people cut into pieces and I was completely traumatized I was I genuinely remember when I was 14, I could, the only thing I could think of is the name of the book I'm going to publish when I am, if I make it alive. And I witnessed the massacre in Rafah, and that's why I've been severely traumatized because I was there on the Black Friday where they literally like committed a massacre against Rafah. And it was horrific. And till this day, I'm still getting therapy treatments from um, therapists outside Gaza because of what I've witnessed and what I've seen. To be honest, I didn't expect to be, you know, strong or be able to go cover on the ground. Thankfully, I was able to do so. It was really difficult. It was horrific at times because, you know, I'm not a journalist. I'm a human rights activist. I'm still a student. This is the first time for me. And I was the youngest on the ground to be covering. So it was a really new experience. But everyone was so sweet and they were like so protective of me. And uh, it was as much as it was heartbreaking. It was also an experience that made me feel so loved and so protected by my own people, the Palestinian people. I've witnessed horrific things. Like I was, unfortunately, because my boss was really protective of me, he didn't let me go to the places when they have like a warning that they bomb. But sometimes we went just before, like just after, right after the the bombing was happening. And because my father passed away recently, I couldn't go to the hospital till like maybe yesterday was the first time I was able to go to the hospital. I couldn't go and see people cut into pieces, but my colleagues have gone and they literally saw children cut into pieces and they were telling me all about it. What I saw, I saw destruction. I saw destruction not only on the ground, not only in like rubble, but I saw destruction in the in people's eyes. I saw lost hopes I saw lost dreams I saw children literally what killed me the most are the children and I think you can see a viral video I posted where we were we we got like we were in the office and we were uh, sitting down we were working I was working on uploading new footage of what we've been filming on the war on the aggression sorry I hate using this but it's what they've accustomed our brains to use it's it's unfortunately it's colonial legacy and anyway so I I was in the office and then suddenly we hear a bomb very near to us so immediately me and my colleagues we start running and I document that I document the stress the anxiety of that minute like when we heard an attack happening and we went we jumped literally in the car and we went to the place we were trying to see where it is and we went and it was very close to us and it was horrific because I saw th- this like anxiety we didn't know what was happening they bombed it but then we didn't know if they're gonna bomb the whole tower they bombed it with one rocket we don't know if they're gonna like make it to the ground like what they did in 2021 which was their bank of targets was towers so i was very scared and that was the first time i broke down into tears because i saw children live in front of my eyes injured and and there's a video of me crying saying they're children they're children and i just break down that image was really difficult for me and another story that touched me so so deeply but i genuinely like there is i've already gone so far in the reporting but i'm not i don't think i'm like super ready for everything so there's a story that my colleagues went to but i couldn't go to but i've been 
you know, watching it so closely and it's so dear to my heart. And, and unfortunately, it's Khalil who was murdered. He's the only son of uh, a woman who is in Jabalia. And this woman, she's literally been infertile. She's been struggling and having IVF for, I think, 12 to 14 years. And it's her only child. And she's been like, she's... Just the footage of her, just watching the videos and 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 seeing her hugging his clothes and crying. I I am honestly speechless. And another story that touched me so deeply was a survivor of. You, you know, there are so many stories, and and I feel so bad because I, I can't give each one of them. You know, the right or like the enough time because they're so huge. They're human lives. They're human stories. Um, another story that really touched me was um, a story that we did in Palestine Tower. We went the second after three days it was bombed. We went and we talked with a father uh, who, you know, really broke my heart. I I couldn't. He his daughter was going downstairs to buy some like chips and you know stuff. His daughter is like um, eleven years old, I think, and she went downstairs to go get the groceries and then they bombed the Palestine tower. And when they bombed it, they bombed it from all different directions. And then what happened exactly is that the father and the mother, they realized that their daughter is not with them and they went downstairs running and then they only found one shoe of her and then blood. So they thought she was murdered. They thought she was killed and they couldn't find her for a few minutes. And because of how heavy the bombardment was, she literally flew to the other part of the street and uh, someone was carrying her and holding her close. She was injured, but she survived. She wasn't like severely injured. And, you know, he was telling us the story and I swear he couldn't look at his daughter. He couldn't look at her. Every time he looks at her, he breaks down into tears. And he was crying because he was like, I don't have anywhere to go to. I don't have a place I can go to when they're bombing. Like, I don't have a brother or or he doesn't have any siblings. And his parents, he's an orphan, so his parents are dead. And he can't go anywhere. So he doesn't even have people to go to. So it really broke my heart. And, and the girl, she was talking to me. And she was like, oh, I follow you on Instagram. And I know you. And she was like... You know, just a child. And I was just so shocked of like how this little girl who's like only 11 years old have witnessed all of this, witnessed being like literally like almost a near death experience and seen it all. And their house was completely destroyed, but I couldn't focus on that when it was like human lives, you know, at risk. They've lost their house. They've lost everything. And now they're trying to find a new refuge. They're trying to find a new home. So many stories, uh, Lara. I I can go on and on and on, and it's so heartbreaking. I don't think there's like literally one story that's more important than the other. It's all like you know the kids who were massacred in in Fallujah Cemetery, like they were literally going to visit their grandparents' grave. I could, I, this could have been me. This could have been me going to visit my father's grave, and and my father is another story. I I didn't see my father. For six years, can you imagine? Just because of Israeli blockade on Gaza, I couldn't go back to Gaza and I couldn't see him. And when I went back after the last war in 2021, I saw him only for six months and then he passed away suddenly. So I keep thinking like, you know, I, I wish my reality was different. I wish I could could have seen him more. I wish I could have had... You know, six years is a long time without someone's family. And this is not only my story. When you talk to any Palestinian in the diaspora or within Palestine, there are stories that literally Annie, leave you speechless. I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I'm talking too much, but no, you brought up the story of Khalil. His mom, Najwa Abu Hamada, went through five rounds of IVF to conceive her son, and there were some articles published about him and how his mother spoke to reporters and said that yesterday my son and I were having dinner. They, of course, live in the crowded Jabalia refugee camp. And Khalil went out of the house just before him and his mother finished dinner. 
And just a moment later, there was a very strong bombardment that shook their home. And the mother quickly threw on some clothes and ran outside into the street. And she found the body of her son's best friend before eventually finding her son's body. And, you know, the mother was interviewed saying how she was really excited for her son to graduate. Uh, she wanted to find him a bride. And in just a moment, all of that was taken away from her. She said that she found people in the street out like it was the day of resurrection. She said they were choking on dust and wreckage, and they were desperately searching for survivors. You're absolutely right that no one story is more important than the other. And sometimes I wonder if, you know, we do a disservice by focusing on one and maybe not talking about another. We have to talk about them all. And then sometimes we don't get to because then a new tragedy replaces the one that just happened. It's, it's just this very impossible attempt to memorialize and to honor and to respect those who have been so brutally killed in such painful ways, so senselessly for nothing. I published an article on my Instagram today. The Haaretz reported that the quote-unquote Gaza up boosts Lapid. And this comes from, this headline comes from three public opinion polls that were released on Monday saying that the apartheid state's prime minister, Yair Lapid, emerged stronger from Israel's quote-unquote three days of fighting in Gaza. And so this is something that we talk about all the time, this notion that the apartheid state commits these assaults so that whoever is in charge that, at that particular moment can look a little bit more strong in, in the face of the public who will happily cheer him on as he slaughters Palestinians. It doesn't really matter if they're children. It doesn't really matter if they're families. They will obviously, he will never have to account for who he has actually killed. The only thing that will come out of this is that he will look like a strong man before the next election, and that will maybe help him and his chances. At least that's what he thinks will happen, and at least that's how the public reacts to him. So it's this very twisted scenario where you're witnessing these things on the ground, we're reading about them, these, these families are being ripped apart, and what's it all for? Nothing. It's for nothing. And it's almost like can't somebody make this stop because it's for nothing? It's so senseless. I saw you posted a story of an attack on a horse cart. You I'm know, my brain, I swear, my brain blocked that memory. I mean, this is a part of my PTSD. I have whole periods of my life completely forgotten. Literally, like my mom the other day was... Yeah, like a year ago or something, we were talking and she was really upset because she was like, how can you like, how can you not remember this? And and it was like a memory between me and her. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, mom, I don't remember my childhood. And she was really like angry because she's like, but I gave you like a really good childhood. And then I was like talking to my therapist about it. And she was like, this is part of your PTSD. Your brain tries to block periods of time and and honestly this horse thing it shook me so much and when you talk to me about like these incidents I've witnessed my brain blocked it because of how horrific it was oh my god Lara like when we arrived to the scene we arrived immediately this is a scene I witnessed I, I saw the bodies there I saw the blood and when we arrived there we found a cake next to the blood there was like imagine a pool of blood the horse bleeding and we found a cake the man on the cart, he was going home to his children. He brought a cake, a birthday cake. And you know, it shook me. Like, imagine he was bringing his children a cake in the middle of the war because he was remembering them. He was going out, out of his way, working during the war because he needs to have a source of income. And he was bringing them cake and some food, some groceries. And he was selling watermelons, you know? And they bombed another car next to him. Maybe he wasn't specifically targeted, but they know they know who they're targeting. They see everything. They're like literally a nuclear 
power they, they have. It's a nuclear army. They, they're one of the strongest armies in the world. They see everything. They know they, who's walking by. And they, you know, they claim, they have the audacity to claim, oh, we didn't bomb blah, 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 because we saw a woman, like, literally, like, recently, my boss was talking to me about it. He was like, they published something saying they didn't bomb that, um, I don't know which uh, case specifically, but they didn't bomb them because there was a, a man walking by. But then they waited for three other cars to be in the same area. I think it was in the Jabalia massacre uh, in the car, you know, and then they bombed. So they don't care. They don't care. They keep killing with impunity and they know no one is stopping them. And unfortunately, throughout my life, you know, I am one of the people who lived from like, I mean, I am born in the 2000s. So I don't remember the good old days. I've only been born to poverty. I've only been born to uh, blockade. I've only been born to complete like horrific aggressions one after another. I don't remember one day I was genuinely feeling safe in my country and feeling relieved and feeling يعني, just comfortable and, and relieved with who I am and how I'm living with my life. Not even when I'm in the UK, not even when I'm hundreds of miles away from my family home, because I'm worrying that at any minute something could happen and they, they would be murdered. And you know, talking about the horse, last year, the reason I, I returned to Gaza and took a gap year, and I was so lucky because then I, I could see my father, because imagine I would have not returned if the war didn't happen, uh, if the aggression didn't happen in 2021. Um, I couldn't reach my family for more than 30 minutes. And I thought they were dead because I just saw a, a picture of our neighbor's house being completely destroyed, demolished to the ground. And I saw blood on our house. And it was the blood of my tortoise, my tortoise of nine years, my first ever bet. And at the time, it was it went viral, what I posted, because it was our, my tortoise, my first pet ever. I had it for nine years. It was the connection between my father and I, you know, because he used to take care of him. I named him Casper. I was really young when we got them. And I think I watched something and it was called Casper. So I called him Casper. My father used to go when I was away for six years. He used to go every day up to the roof and feed this tortoise. Try to like, And even sometimes we lost, we lost him. We lost him for a year and then he returned. So it was, we we're so connected to this tortoise. And when they murder a tortoise, you know, it was, it was uh, murdered because of our neighbor's house being demolished. And then the uh, shellings went to our home and it, he was there and he was murdered. My brother couldn't rescue him. He only rescued our dog. And it broke my heart, you know, and, and, and every Palestinian you're going to talk to in Gaza have someone who lost their family member, their mother. You know, we, as you said, we're from a tragedy to another. Only a month ago, Shireen Abu Akhle, our veteran journalist, was murdered. And you, I was here, I was in Palestine, when huge amounts of, uh, you know, sadness. It was like a funeral in the whole of Palestine. It was, it was horrific. And I was witnessing it in Ain Media. And they remembered their colleague, Yasser Murtaja. And it was so difficult. It was... Honestly, it was, I couldn't even look at my colleagues in the eye. This continues the, the, from a tragedy to another. And, you know, they have the audacity to bomb Nablus and kill three Palestinians. Literally the next day after they agreed to a ceasefire, to a truce. It's, it's unbelievable. It leaves me speechless every time. It's pretty crazy how the whole society accuses people of blood libel but then every few years commits mass murder and then like that's a popular political strategy i i brought up the horse the attack on the horse cart yara because one of the popular zionist tactics is to talk about how anxious their pets are and if they want to talk about pets let's talk about pets people in gaza have pets too if they want to talk about pets we can talk about pets you know, we can talk about anything. We can talk about anything. They massacre our horses. They massacre your tortoise. They massacre. Um, there was our a, cats. The cats. The cats. There was there was a video of a shelling taking place on a building. It was recently posted. I think Ion Palestine posted it. And right after the shelling, you could see a cat 
run across the screen. The white cat, yeah, yeah. Very scared. You could see how anxious it was. And it was like, is this someone's cat? Who even knows? The video of the horse being, cart being attacked really touched me because you could see that the horse was still alive and that he was still, he he was still writhing in pain when you arrived on the scene to start filming. And I know that the horse eventually died, but you could see that I can't even imagine the amount of pain that an animal must feel in that moment. And you can't explain to the animal what is happening. You can't tell them that these are, this is a colonial entity and they're doing this because they want to ethically cleanse Palestine. And that's what's going on. The horse is living its life totally oblivious to all of these political realities. And this is one of the creatures that God has created and dignified on this earth. And it's life, which is so precious which is which is a life that has been given by God is taken away in a moment in a flash for somebody's political career to advance. Um, but Lara, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but Lara, oh. they they genuinely don't care about human life. Are you gonna expect them to care about animals? Honestly, no, like they, they talk about animals. So I'm yeah, I know. Yeah, so I'm saying okay, let's talk about our animals too. I mean, you don't you don't give a shit about our people, but if you want to talk about your animals, then we can talk about yeah. ours as well. I thought they would care because they have a vegan army. <laughs> you know, my dog, I have a dog and he's not been normal since the aggression. He's He's been barking like crazy every night, at night specifically, because that's when the bombardment would be heavy. And he's been so anxious. Like when I posted a story, Lara, maybe you've seen it. I was away from home for three days. I would come home like only for two hours to sleep and wake up like really early in the morning to go on the ground covering. And my dog missed me. My dog saw that there is something. They're, they're bombing. And, and you know, I, I was so heartbroken because I'm like, how can I explain to him that what's happening, you know? And honestly, like, I, I feel a connection with my dog. And I, I want to explain it to him. And I don't know. I found my mom. I swear to God, I'm not joking to you. I found my mom on the room holding him because he was so scared when there was the bomb and I entered the room I was running to my mom and I found her carrying him and talking to him she was literally talking to him because she was trying anything that could calm him she was like okay these are bombs we're they're bombing us and hopefully we're safe hopefully we're gonna survive this and I found her talking to the dog like and I was like oh my god the things they make us like you know and he's still really scared. He still barks a lot. Like I was scared that, like in the middle of this uh, episode, you're gonna suddenly hear him uh, barking a lot because he's scared, or someone he hears a noise in the street or something. Because it was horrific. It was horrific for everyone. No one is safe. Not even our animals. Not even our dogs. Not even our horses. Not even our birds. You know. I, honestly, I think sometimes I wonder, like, if the birds get annoyed too by the sound of the drones because. You know, it's like so annoying for me. So I, I wonder if I'm a bird and I'm flying and I'm sorry, I sound so weird, but like I, I, I genuinely wonder like as a bird in the sky and I have a drone next to me just going like, I'm like, come on, like, don't they wonder as well? What's this? There's a theory that birds are drones, that birds are not real, and birds are CIA (laughs) operatives. So you never know. They could be sort of working with the drones, you know? Just a thought, just a thought, just throwing that out there. I don't believe it myself, but. Yana, where's your family from originally? I'm from Magar. My my grandparents uh, were actually displaced. They were very young. So I'm like a second generation refugee. Is that right? Because it's not me. It's my grand, like my direct grandparents. So yeah, both of my grandparents are from Magar and they were there in 1948. After they were expelled, we moved to Gaza. And that's where I was born. My father was born and my mother. And my mother is from Sawakir Galbi, which is also another village in occupied Palestine. And, you know, what's so heartbreaking is, like, I've heard about Mgar so much. I've heard about the, the the place we had. I've heard about my grandfather's house that he was in. And he was, honestly, I think he was five years old when he was displaced. So he was one of the young generations to be displaced. And it was so heartbreaking. Like, it's always so heartbreaking to hear about it, to see my, my uncles and my father telling me about Mgar from 
not even his experience, but from his father's experience, who was five years old, who still remembers his land before it was, you know, he was displaced. And I've never been to the rest of Palestine. The only thing I've seen from Palestine is Gaza. And, you know, I've traveled around the world. I've seen the U.S., I've seen France, I've, I've been to the U.K., I've lived in the U.K., and I've lived in Jordan, blah, blah, blah. I've never been to anywhere in Palestine. And you see, Americans, literally American citizens, excuse me, but literally American citizens who go to uh Palestine and see Palestine and and I have like even in my boarding school because I went to boarding school and that's how I left Gaza initially yeah my story is quite complicated but um when they literally like I I had my classmates be like I'm going to holiday in Israel and I was just there like stuck in the UK can't go to visit my family in Gaza and it's like it's Christmas time and I have literally nowhere to go because I you know Everyone goes home in Christmas. Everyone, and and I I really wished I really wished I could spend Christmas in in Gaza, but I couldn't. So then I had to stay with some friends in the UK. I was lucky that I had someone, but there are people who don't have even someone, and it was so heartbreaking. My other classmates were going to Israel for holiday and Christmas. They were spending and. Easily, they, they can go because they have passports that could let them in. And it's my country. It's something I've been literally like running in my blood. I've been eating the food of Palestine since I was a little girl. I've been fighting. I've been witnessing everything, everything. My whole life, I've de- dedicated it for Palestine because of what I've witnessed. Yani, I study international relations. I would have never, not in a million years, would have been an activist, would have been a journalist. I hate politics. I hate everything about politics. You know, I hate sitting down and studying about the European Union and the United Nations and how useless they are. I hate it, but I'm doing it because this is my only way of helping my country. This is the only way of giving me a voice and giving my people a voice. Yeah, it makes sense that they'd be going for Christmas, a famous holiday for the Jews. Michael and your comments, you just make me laugh. Okay, two questions. Two okay. questions. You can take either one. Yeah. One, how have your interviews been going? Have you been treated with respect and dignity? Have you been asked really dehumanizing questions by reporters? Just share a little bit of that. And then the other question is give us a sense of how you and your friends and your family, what are you talking about right now? Like, what is the sense on the ground of people in Gaza? Yeah, okay. So answering the first question, I I think my brain just went on like brain freeze. The question was, sorry, because I'm stuck on the second question. That's okay. The first one, the first one was... Is that all the time? It's a lawyer tactic where yeah, they steamroll you with questions, so yeah, you you, you give like a subpar answer that they can jump <laughs> no, on. But okay, I, I got it. It's just because I've been running on a really like no, 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 I, I need my ten hours of sleep, nine hours. Okay, my, I, I sleep a lot. I like sleeping. So and I've been sleeping like four hours a day since the the aggression because I've been trying to cover on the ground and generally like I just my sleeping has been horrible. I have insomnia because of what we do with this. But my interviews, you know, the first interview I've had was the most horrible one because I was Adnan, you know, Adnan Barakh, he recommended me to someone um, and he was like, oh, Yara, uh, like first, the first day of the aggression, there's uh, an RT, RT International want to do an interview with you. And I was like, okay, amazing. This is like, I, I want to, like, even if I'm scared, even if the bombs are dropping and it's not late at night, I'm going to try my best to be like, you know, to give my voice and everything. And then the interviewer had the audacity to be like, but can't we blame both sides? And I was literally sitting down and I was talking to him. And every second, like when you watch the interview, you could see me like I was going crazy. Every second I was looking because here there is a window. Every second I was looking at the window because I was like, oh, my God, is it is it near? Is it going to is it going to be like the house next to me? Is it? And he was like, he had the audacity to compare both sides, the, the whole both sides narrative. And, you know, it's crazy. Today I had an interview with an Algerian international TV. And then 
it was so different. Like the reporting style was so different. He was telling me about how people claim that it's both sides and it's Islamic Jihad. And it's ridiculous to, to compare like handmade rockets with a nuclear army. And you see, there's two different kinds of reporting. There's one that blames, it's like the New York Times, they posted a story of uh, actually a close friend of mine. He gave them pictures of bombs. He gave them pictures of destruction, people cut into pieces, everything. And he gives them also, because, you know, this is happening, also a picture of launching rockets. Take a guess, Lara, which one did they pick? Of course depict the picture of the Islamic Jihad rockets and they wrote, oh, Gaza militants, they're firing rockets as Israel. And it's like, look at the statistics. 45 people have been murdered, 15 children. And, and I don't want to say, oh, because no one has been murdered in Israel. But literally, like, how can you compare? How can you compare a colonial entity that everyone, you know, but this is history. And Apartheid South Africa, no one was with South Africa, and everyone was against what's happening. So sometimes this gives me hope. I keep looking at like tragedies in history, and I keep thinking, okay, I'm on the right side of history, and these people are just, honestly, yani the reporter who talked to me from RT, I was just like, you're dumb. Like, And, and I, I was so naive because I was like, I, I couldn't even, like, I was so anxious, I was so stressed when I was talking in the interview, that I didn't process was I, how I answered to him. I wanted to scream at him. I wanted to be angry. I wanted to give him, like, teach him a lesson. I wanted to tell him, like, how dare you, like, say both sides? How dare you? But I was, yeah. I was so, like, you know, I answered, but not the answer I wanted to give. I still talked about how it's unbelievable to, like, put both sides' narratives. And the other question... Can I just respond to to that really quickly? It's So you mentioned that it's ridiculous to make that comparison, obviously because of the consequences and because of who the two players are. But there's another reason why it's absolutely absurd to make the both sides comparison. And that is that if you look at this contextually speaking, one entity is occupying the land of another people. That is the context that you need to understand in order to understand why Palestinians at any point in time may be resisting. And also why the apartheid state is going to use aggressive violence against Palestinians in an effort to control and sequester them into smaller pieces of land so that they can continue to take more and more land. That's the necessary context. If you don't have that context, you can't understand what these flare-ups of colonial violence are that are that are carried out by this colonial entity when we're talking about native americans don't you think that there is blame on both sides you know what i mean there's there's the native people who were there and then there are the white settlers who came and murdered everybody isn't it isn't it comparable and you know i'm so sick of hearing hamas and jihad now it's not hamas anymore it's Islamic jihad. <laughs> They're like Hamas is tired. You know what I mean? People are people are immune to hearing the word Hamas. We're pulling out the big guns of Islamic jihad. That'll scare people. I've seen that comment maybe a hundred times in the past couple of days. Exactly. It is so incredibly racist to try to scare people by using the names of these political entities, these resistance groups, to say that their resistance, by definition, is invalid because of their name, because I have attributed some racist idea that they must be just these terrorist groups that have no aim, that have no context, that have no reason, that are not people, that are not human at all, right? Um, And that's what they try to do by focusing on these names without providing any context or understanding of who these people are. Yara, you said yourself, your family is from 1948. You are from villages that were ethnically cleansed by this entity, which is now called Israel, and sits atop of the land that your grandparents come from. Israelis are not scared to call you a terrorist. I've been called a terrorist multiple times before just because I'm Palestinian, honestly. Like, I I remember an Israeli, because I was in boarding school and I lived with Israelis, I remember an Israeli coming up to me once and he was like, but you're a terrorist and what your people do 
deserters. And honestly, I have like horrific incidents of people like, obviously, I'm not saying everyone is like this, but I remember there was a girl. This is like, honestly, insane. I remember there was a girl in my school who was watching and everyone in the school knew about this story because it was so horrific. She was watching. She wanted to become a pilot in the Israeli army. And you know, they enlist in the army. So she was watching bombs drop over Gaza in the common area where students study. And she was like, wait, wait, this is the best part. And when it's like a building, a tower goes to the ground. And you know, this is, this is what I experienced. This is, but at the same time, it's horrible because there, there is a minority. There is a minority that is trying to change. For example, I remember a girl also in my school, because I want to be fair, she refused to serve in the Israeli army and she was put into jail and shamed and called a terrorist and everything, and even though she's Israeli. So for them, anyone who's against the Israeli apartheid state is a terrorist, <laughs> literally. And it, what's so funny is, The Israeli army is the biggest terrorist state I know. Like, literally, if you look at the history of the Israeli, the most moral army in the world, like, come on, like, like, are you kidding yourself? And then you find like, oh my God, it's horrible. The brainwashing, the greenwashing, the pinkwashing. It's insane. Like, go on TikTok. Just go on TikTok and see the content. Like, honestly, because we're in 2022. Go on TikTok and see the content that Israeli soldiers post. I stay away from TikTok, but Michael does inform me about some of the Zionist videos that are circulating. And then I get nauseous and I have to take a step back. But he, he's, he like, holds it down on TikTok. He holds it down for both of us. Michael, did you see what Adnan posted like the other day? Adnan is my hero. He's yeah. so funny. He's like, <laughs> he's the funniest Palestinian. He's one of the funniest Palestinians I know. And there's this guy who on TikTok made a viral video. And I just can't believe it. Like, how can you honestly, like, don't you feel a bit ashamed? Don't you feel a bit embarrassed of the content you create? Like, they put they created a video when they were running in the room and they just put a fake audio of an alarm like system where like it did it's the like sirens a, yeah the sirens yeah it was and a fake siren and it stopped immediately as soon as the door closed and it was just like the worst acting ever and then so adnan recreated it with like a bunch of different audios that was pretty funny uh but i was thinking to myself as you were telling the story about how you were documenting like the moments that like you were running out to capture the footage of the events. I was and like, oh, you, yeah, I was like, you lived the actual event that they created for their propaganda video. You know exactly. what I mean? Like where the guy, yeah. so because they're literally creating like, like they're seeing what we're experiencing and they're like saying, oh, but this is what we experienced. And they have shelters. Right. Like what's, right. what's so heartbreaking for me is that, I got a message from my friend, uh, Fabi. She's my best friend in the UK. She is usually really anxious when it comes to whatever happens in Palestine, like most people, but she's really anxious about me. So when the, the aggression started, she kept texting me like, are you safe? Can you please go somewhere safe? And I'm like, I'm so sorry, but where is this place that's somewhere safe in Gaza? I yeah. literally, she, like I... I Wanted so hard not to scare her, but uh, at the same time, I couldn't lie to her. There's literally, they could bomb anywhere. And they, they said their bank of targets is the Islamic Jihad, but the 15 children, then you're like, okay, that's like what collateral damage or uh, like, how can mm. you justify that? How can not you a chance possibly justify that? How can you justify literally killing people in a cemetery? Children, five children. Who were murdered today? I was in Jabalia and I was passing by Fallujah Cemetery and I saw their pictures and you know, like, oh my God, me and my 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 colleague, we were like, we stood there for a minute, like looking at the cemetery and it was just like, they were buried in the same cemetery they were visiting their grandparents at, and they were literally murdered just because they went, imagine, to visit to to. We can't even grieve in peace. We can't even be sad in peace. And, you know, a tragedy after another. Like, we're still not recovered from what happened with Shireen. We're still, I'm still not recovered from what happened in 2021. You know, in Gaza, the, the, what's crazy is that, you know, the, the rebuilding of Gaza, there are still buildings that are trying to be rebuilt from 2014. I was passing in the car the other day and I was like, oh my God, look at this building. It's not 
even done and it's from the 2021 war. And then my colleague told me, well, no, this is from 2014. This is, this is you know, and, and they keep doing this. This cycle does not end. And this is what's so exhausting is that like they're trying to like make everyone like, you know, run away from Gaza. I've, I've, you know, the reason I've left Gaza is that, is that I don't feel safe. I, what I've witnessed in 2014 made me hate everything, made me hate life even. I was like, oh my God, how a child, a 14-year-old child can witness something like this, something so, like I genuinely saw people being cut into pieces in front of my eyes. And I saw death literally in front of me. We were running with my grandmother. We we witnessed the Rafah massacre. We survived by miracle, by miracle. And I just remember my little brother with his, um, you know, like uh, marbles. He's carrying his marbles with him, like his precious things, and we're running. And this, the stories continue. Every year there is a more tragic story. Like uh, last a few months ago, I was interviewing Zainab Al-Qulak, an artist who lost 22 members of her family. This is a whole family removed from the civil registry. A whole family completely, يعني, completely, completely gone. And then people come and tell you both sides. Tell me both sides. Like, this is the hardest thing. This is the hardest thing. When you when you see people seeing all the truth, seeing everything. We, we're, and, you know, we're, we Palestinians, we have to go out of our way every single day, every single day, in everything we do to try to prove ourselves, to try to prove to the world that we do exist and what happens to us. Yani, it's not enough what happens to us. We try to resist. And our resistance is just literally to try to just, show the world that we exist. I believe the last time a Zionist family was wiped off the registry was the Holocaust. I don't remember a time in recent history that a Palestinian family has wiped out a uh, Zionist family from the registry. I mean... And they say we're the terrorists. We, they claim, you know... I, what breaks me the most is that, like, I really miss my father, Lara. I really do. And I didn't get to see him for six years. And I feel guilty. I feel guilty for leaving Gaza. So even when we leave to seek refuge, even when we leave to make a better future for us, and it's not it's not my option. It's not because I left for good. I want to go back. I want to go back to Gaza. And I want to even live here if the situation is better. But it's it's not, you know, unemployment rates are high. It's not only the wars. Like, I swear, the UN said Gaza is unlivable by 2020. We're in 2022, so literally, like, sometimes I think about, like, writing, like, a book and just, like, sharing, like, just a normal, like, just my life story, just, like, how I wake up in the morning if I want to shower. This is just, like, the, the small things that I was so privileged to have in the UK. I wake up in the morning, I want to shower. Well, I don't have water. Even if I have water, we don't have electricity, so I don't have hot water. So then, okay, I want to... I'm not going to shower now. I just want to have a drink of water because I woke up. Well, I don't have access to clean water. And then I get H. pylori and I become, I, I go to the hospital for two weeks because of what they put in our food. And it's just like, come on, like not even in the, when we have peace, when we have a truce, it's not, it's not peaceful. It's systematic violence targeted at us in every single minute and every single detail we live. Like literally, it's insane. And you know, you asked me about like how the people are living. It's it's people are still scared, you know, and the streets are not crowded as before. People are still scared that someone is gonna break the truth and that the bombing would start again. People are so I think so heartbroken. What happened was so difficult for us. And it yani imagine your whole trauma is just completely revived in just three days. In sixty in fifty-six hours, they revive your trauma of years. Wallah, like it's so hard. It's it's unbelievable. W what Palestinians go through every single day. Nora Fifiada was right when she said we Palestinians wake up every morning to teach the rest of the world life, sir. She was right. Because despite it all, you still have children I, I videoed a girl yesterday she was sitting on the rubble of her house she told me I lost all my toys and then she smiled and I was just like how how can I bring how can I give you a childhood you deserve how how 
like I feel so helpless sometimes and I feel like I need to do more and and that's what Palestinian activists, any normal Palestinian always feels. We all feel guilty because we feel guilty that we survived even. I have guilt because I've survived and Najwa lost her, her son. You know, my brother the other day, he broke my heart. He is not a very affectionate person usually. Like, it's just like, he saw me after the word. He kept hugging me and kissing me. And I was just like, my mom was looking at him like, you know, like a brother-sister relationship. We're always like fighting and we're always like teasing each other after the aggression. She found him like hugging me and like constantly trying to be close to me. And I was like, no, come on, what's wrong with you? Why do you keep hugging me? And then he was like, you know, when you kissed me the other day when you left to work and you went on the ground, I imagined you, Shireen Abu Aqle. And, and it broke me so much. And I got dozens of messages from people telling me, you're the new Shireen, we believe in you. So this gives me honor, of course, but then it, it breaks my heart because of course I'm scared. I'm scared to be the next Shireen Abu Aqle because, you know, I'm going to dedicate my whole life for Palestine and then what? Be killed and no one... No one cares. Nothing has been done to serve justice for Shireen. Nothing. I have so many things I want to tell. Wallah, we'll be like, till I think we can talk for a month, you know. Yesterday, Hussein was murdered in, in, in Nablus. A girl sent me a picture of his profile and she told me he used to follow you. You know, like, he was a child. He used to think of me as a role model. He used to follow me, follow my 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 activism and stuff, and and it just broke me so much. I was watching footage of Shireen's early reporting, and I saw your reporting the other day, and they did look very similar. So I, I was talking to Lara about this, how you know the kids, like, because you're you're a child. Like, I mean that with the utmost respect, but you're a child. Yeah, yeah. how old are you? You're, you're I'm 22, yeah. but yeah. I consider myself a child. Yeah. I, I'm still yeah. 15. And, uh, yeah. and it's like the children, they step up out of necessity, right? Because yeah, I, I, you know, I remember I didn't grow up with Shireen because she's yani, the generation for my parents' generation, you know, my parents' generation really watched Shireen from being a really little girl, like from being so young to her whole career, they followed her throughout her career. For me in Gaza, I, I followed Tamir al-Mishal. And I remember myself like as a kid, always going and saying, Ya Ra'id al-Jazeera, Gaza, Filastin. We, we've always done it. Every little kid of us have, have tried that. And unfortunately, like honestly, in a parallel universe, I don't think I would have wanted to be a journalist. I don't think I want to... I would want to be an artist, you know, like so I would want to be a filmmaker. I mean, I could still do this, but I would have never imagined myself. I, I would imagine myself maybe studying like medicine or art. I don't know. I would have never imagined myself studying international relations and like political science. But reality forces us to do stuff. Reality, what I've experienced in Gaza, I've never even imagined myself living outside Gaza, you know, because I love, I love living here i love the people honestly my mental health has been so bad in the uk that when i came home i even gained weight i gained like 15 kilos because i've been eating so much like the good food and i've been just like you know my mind has been a bit like relieved because finally i'm with my family i'm with my friend i feel home i don't feel like i'm a burden of someone i don't feel like oh my god like at any moment, there could be a break and I would be staying at someone's house or like, finally, I just felt like I'm home. These people get my jokes. These people speak my language. I'm home. And, you know, there are Palestinians who haven't been to Gaza for literally years. Like the other day, uh, my friend's uncle came back after 40 years of being away from Gaza. He left when he was a little kid. Now he came back as an old man. Sorry, I'm, I'm maybe I'm speaking too much, but you're not. You're no, not. we booked you for a podcast, so that's actually the assignment. <laughs> okay, she understood the assignment. I yes. see your TikTok references. <laughs> Yara, we. I mean, I, I, I would love to have you come back again and share more of your anecdotes and stories. Um, I think we should. I think we should talk about Ibrahim Nabosi. We're not. We're definitely not 
done. This is okay. just that, you know, this is just the beginning of a, of, of a conversation between us. Um, Michael, maybe we can end by talking about Ibrahim Nabulsi. Yeah. This episode, uh, but we would love to have you come back again, Yara. I mean, this is, like I said, just the beginning Habibi. of our relationship. Thank you. I'm yeah. so it's happy an to honor. know you. It's an honor. Thank you oh. so much. It's an, it's an honor for me. And I'd love to do it again. And honestly, like, even if I share just about my my life story, just not talking about politics, not talking about anything. Sure. Well, it's going to be hard, but it's just like sharing with you when I was 16, when I was a little girl and had to leave Gaza for the first time and I was alone. And yeah. just my journey to the UK and what I've, I've had to go through throughout the six years of being away from home, you know, it's alone, like every single person. And this is what makes me want to be a journalist. This is what gives me hope these days is that every single person I meet in, in Gaza and in Palestine generally, they have like a story, you're, you're speechless. You hear it and you're like, oh my God. When we were reporting, there was a, a French reporter with us. She came from the West Bank for a few days just after the aggression. And it's so funny. Like it's, it's sad funny, you know? Every time we go and we hear a story, she's like, oh, my God, this is, I think, like, this is too heavy. This is too much. And then we go to the other story and she's like, oh, my God, I can't. This is even worse. And it's just like the stories. Every Palestinian has a story about loneliness in this world because the exile has and, and our encounter with exile. Some of us are in exile our whole lives and some of us go into exile thinking that it's going to be a refuge from living the current trauma of colonial violence. Some of us, you know, study in exile. Some of us don't come back, whatever it may be. But in that exile is profound loneliness. Even if we grow up in Palestinian communities, even if you find Palestinian friends abroad, we are meant to be in our home. We're meant to be on our land, in our country, with our people. We are meant to grow up amidst our Palestinian neighbors. You're supposed to be able to go visit Adnan, but you'll never you're, meet him. Exactly. You'll, you'll never and, meet him. And not him. only that, you, you're you Gazan, right? Of course. I am from so, there. Uh, yeah, I should I should see you. It should be just, honestly, you know what was so heartbreaking? Last year, my best friend in the UK, she's from Jerusalem, and I couldn't see her for two years because of coronavirus. And then I went to Palestine and she was in Palestine. She was stuck in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And we were in the same country. We were literally like hours away from each other. And I, I only see her in Edinburgh. I couldn't see her, obviously, because she's in Jerusalem and I'm in Gaza. And the occupation, you know, they have, they have, it's a colonial legacy. I mean, they, they know what they're doing. They have, even they make your life like especially in Gaza and I, I can't talk a lot about the West Bank but even within the West Bank in 1948 and they make they make sure that they make your life a living hell so you don't you, you either يعني, it's like a brain drain you either leave the country so even if there's a truce and even if there's no war in Gaza for example if I ask my friend would you live in Gaza if there's no war let's just assume that Israel is never going to attack any civilians in Gaza which is like <laughs> <laughs> okay. That um, is an assumption. Let's say that. Would you live in Gaza? They're going to be like, well, I studied like for eight years abroad, and then I'm going to come to Gaza and be unemployed. I'm not going to even be able to provide a life for my children, or I'm not even, even going to be able to provide like a source of income for my family. I'm not going to even be able to start a family. I'm not. I'm not even going to be able to just live and be fine in Gaza. In, in yani, it's crazy. Sometimes I think about that. I think about, like, what's my future? What's the future holding for me? Am I ever going to settle in Palestine? Am I ever going to go back? I wish. Am I, I would ever... rephrase that because yeah, you don't... said settle in Palestine. <laughs> but you know what I mean. I do know what you mean, but the last time that happened, this whole thing started. So we should maybe reboot that sentence. <laughs> I'm Palestinian. I'm allowed to say it. <laughs> I would say settle down. Yeah, settle down. I think it was because that's what you meant. Yeah, you I definitely meant like, settle down, and they heard it, and they I were mean. like, "That's a clip." Settle down. A clear disclaimer for everyone: English is not my first language. <laughs>
Yeah, you're doing I only great. actually learned English when I left Gaza when I was 16. Uh, you're, you're doing great. Yeah, so you brought up Hossein Jamal Taha, who was one of the kids who were killed in Nablus, one of the, the youth who were following you. He was killed alongside with Ibrahim Nablusi, who, of course, we spoke about on the last episode of the Palestine pod, who the Zionist leaders have been, what was it, Michael, the Zionist think tank saying, we're going to get him dead. And lo and behold, not even a week later, the occupation forces killed him in a raid on occupied Nablus. On social media, we saw a video of uh, Ibrahim Nabilsi's mother being interviewed by reporters. And it was a unique video because usually when you see a Palestinian mother grieving her son, like any mother, there is profound sadness and rage and, and anger and emotion. But Ibrahim Nabilsi's mother was very serene in this video. And she took profound solace in the fact that her son had called her moments before the raid actually took place and moments before he was executed by the occupation forces. And he told her that, you know, I'm about to go out. There's, I'm besieged in this building and I may be martyred. And I love you, mom. And I love you and I may be martyred today, but don't worry about me. Just pray for me. And she found comfort in that and said, alhamdulillah, that he died as a, as a martyr for Palestine. And we saw all of the images of Ibrahim Nabulsi and his words about resistance and fighting for Palestine, fighting for our liberation also circulate on social media. When, when I think about who our leaders are in Palestine, you know, we make jokes a lot of the time about people like Mahmoud Abbas, who... Oh my God. Still he's not my leader. I don't know. No, no. We, make joke, we, we make jokes about him, about how he still doesn't yeah. even know like what happened and he hasn't been briefed and he didn't show up and he didn't get the phone call and he's always late and all of this stuff. But when I think about our real leaders in Palestine, Ibrahim Nabulsi and, and, and those resistance fighters, those youth who give up everything, his colleagues, the people that he was massacred with, like Islam Subhi, these are the people who... I think of as our as our leaders. They are youth who have been thrust into this impossible situation of resisting colonialism, of, of resisting occupation on their land. They were born and they grew up in a situation of occupation, of siege, and they don't know anything but that. But they have hope for freedom and, and they dedicate their entire lives to a day when one at some point in time Palestinians are going to be free. And so here we just want to honor them and memorialize them and, and their memory and, um, and, and their families as well, because they, they suffered the huge loss. Slava Palestina. I don't know. What, what does that mean? Everybody was like, Slava Ukraine, like glory to the martyrs of Ukraine, right? Oh. You know what I mean? Oh. Slava Palestina. Yeah. Because it's like glory to the martyrs of Palestine. But you know, talking about that, sorry, what's so heartbreaking is that like, Muna, for example, Muna al-Kurd, Adnan, all these uh, uh, Palestinian activists who've been posting about Nabulsi have been shadow bound and have been literally like our stories have been removed. And this is not the first time. I'm sure in many episodes you've talked about being shadow banned, being censored by Instagram. But it's insane right now. My story is like in the first few days, because they didn't know my content was about Palestine, like the, the algorithms didn't catch me yet. I used to have like 30K views. Now I have like 9,000. And it's insane. It's, it's just two days later. They found me. They're like, okay, we found her. So now, pew, 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 like we, we censor her. Oh, yeah, they put the claws on you. I mean, yeah, Yeah. I'm so shadow banned. I have 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 (laughs) over 40,000 organic followers, and I get a 1,000 people that view my stories. Yeah, it's insane. And you know what? Wallahi, like from last year, uh, it's crazy. I've been having Instagram remove followers from me. Like people send me messages like I've been removed. And I've been on like 8K for like a year. And I was supposed to be like on 50K and they, every day, every day, 100 goes, 100 goes, 100 goes. It's insane. Same thing for us, but on those like uh, podcast distribution websites, people have been like, oh, we had to re 
subscribe to your Spotify. Like we didn't find you on Apple Podcasts. If you type my name into Instagram, it'll call you an anti-Semite. That's true. So. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Yana, we'd love to have you yeah. back. You're yeah. amazing. Anytime, literally anytime you want to come back, let us know. You're Thank amazing. You. You so much. I pray for your strength, for, for, for you to just, heal and to 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 really for all your dreams to come true and to see you, you one, so much one day in a I free pray, i go back i go back to edinburgh and i finish my degree hopefully it inshallah inshallah yeah. and pray pray to see you one day in a free palestine oh thank you habibti inshallah i'll see you soon take care and you too, Michael. yes thank you so much for giving me this platform it means a lot and you know just talking to another fellow palestinian and another ally can i say that yes. <laughs> you yeah. know <laughs> it just makes me like really it it warms my heart and it, it makes me feel like we're gonna change something soon we we are already changing something when people hear this podcast and know a bit more just just Yara's story or someone's story just one more story this is already we're making a difference so thank you for everyone who's watching and listening. Thank you so much. And everybody follow Yara on Instagram. You are exploding on Instagram as you should be. And uh, she will continue to provide us with live coverage from Gaza. So thank you again. Thank you so much, you, Yara. We so appreciate your time and uh, just everything you're doing. Keep up the great work. You're an inspiration to everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was an honor. Folks, that has been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Go ahead and check out our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email if you'd like at palestinepod at gmail.com. And check us out on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. That's been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day. Do, 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 do.